Grab your Bibles. Let's go to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want your ears to be on. Because, as if you, they're always off or that there's an easy way to turn them on or off. But I want you to listen and I want you to think, what is the problem with the religious teaching that I am just about to share with you? And there is a major problem with what I'm just about to share with you. And I, but I want you to think about it and I want you to try to diagnose where is the error. Here's our first quote. We believe, this is a, a leader of a religious organization. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, so the death of Christ, all mankind may be saved. Comma, by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Let me read that again. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by or through obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Here's another one, a conversation in which I sat uh, in to listen to this religious leader stated that our church has never taught that in order to be right before God, one simply has to believe in Christ, but instead that one must believe in Christ and do good works in order to be right before God. Let me say it again. This leader stated very bluntly, very clearly, we have never taught that in order to be right before God, one simply has to believe in Christ, but instead that one must believe in Christ and do good works in order to be right before God. And so here is the question that faces us this morning. This is what I want to tackle. Is, uh, is being righteous before God, being declared right in His sight, through faith in Christ, or is one righteous before God through faith in Christ plus works, are they the same teaching and just a little different nuanced? Or is there any danger to one's soul in how one understands those basic questions? So let me state that again. Is being right before God through faith in Christ or is it through faith in Christ plus works? Are those different at all? And how somebody answers that is there a danger to their soul one way or another how they answer that? And so uh, I went to Galatians to investigate. And so let's go to Galatians chapter 2. And I want to set the stage. Let's look at verse 11. Verse 11. But when Cephas, uh, the Aramaic word for Peter... Cephas, so that's Peter, the Apostle Peter, came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face, Paul speaking, because he stood condemned. Now, we just have to get that in my mind or get that in our minds. Peter, an apostle, and Paul in a dispute. And Paul opposes Peter to his face. Uh, one of the... Uh, 
religious leaders, the Christian faith, Peter, the, the apostles sent to the Jews. Paul confronts him because he stood condemned. Verse 12, let's look at why Paul needed to do this so publicly and so forcefully. Verse 12 says, For prior to the coming of certain men from James, meaning from Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, when these Jewish men from James came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So Peter, happily in Antioch, eating with the Gentiles, uh, being in close relationship with them. Then these other Jewish uh, men come from Jerusalem and he starts distancing himself from the Gentiles. So you're going, okay, why in the world? Why would that cause Paul to oppose Peter just because he had a little bit of fear of man or because he just felt a little uncomfortable? What is going on here? Let's keep reading. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not, look at that, straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, what Peter is doing in Paul's uh, understanding, and that's, it's a right understanding, it's a scriptural understanding, somehow convolutes or isn't straightforward about the message of the gospel. This is a serious issue. How serious is it? Well, look at chapter 1 of Galatians, verse 6. How important is it to get the gospel right? How important is it that Paul sees that what Peter's doing, if he's not being straightforward with the gospel, that he must oppose him, he must confront him very publicly? Why is it important? Verse 6 of chapter 1 says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. The reality is that there's different ones. There's ones that can depart from the true, the true gospel and that there's different ones. Which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. He is to be damned. As we have said before, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed or to be anathematized. He is to be damned. You Greek students realize verse 8 and 9 are almost the exact same thing. They didn't just say, well, you know what? I've got Microsoft Word, so I can just type that. It's not a big deal if I repeat myself. No, they had very limited space and they don't, they don't uh, mess around with words. If he repeats it twice, it's for extra emphasis. Let them be damned. 
The gospel must be right. We must understand it. And it must be clear. And there's false teaching. And so Paul answers or he goes back to Peter and he sees that what he's doing is wrong. And he must oppose him. He must confront him because he's not being straightforward about the gospel. It's got to be right. If it's wrong, let them be damned. So I ask this question, is there a danger to someone's soul if they get the gospel wrong? And I would argue based on the authority of scripture of chapter one, verse eight and nine, that there is a danger to one's soul. And how one understands and believe in what they believe about the gospel. And so let's dig in and we're going to look at Galatians 2, 19 through 21 to unpack some of his discussion here. And I believe that in Galatians 2, 19 through 21, Paul gives us three realities which you must embrace in order to guard from a works based salvation. That, that Paul gives us three realities which you must embrace in order to guard yourself from ever being swept up into the idea that salvation is by works. And so let's dig in. I'm going to actually read verses 15 all the way to the end because we're talking about somehow Peter has not been straightforward about the gospel and Paul explains it and then he gives a defense. Verse 15 says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. He's talking about two Jews and reminding them that even we're Jews. We're not like these Gentiles, these Gentiles who are ungodly, who don't have the Old Testament, that haven't been following after what God has said in his word. And we're Jews by nature. We're not like these sinful Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified or declared righteous by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, even the Jews, even though they weren't the ungodly ones like the Gentiles who didn't know the Old Testament or know anything about Uh, God's word who didn't have the covenant promises even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified but if while seeking to be declared righteous in Christ we ourselves have been found sinners Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me. And gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law. Then Christ died needlessly. That's our context. Paul opposing Peter. 
Paul explaining that even the Jews have to be declared righteous before God, not through the law, but by faith. And he's going to defend it now. So let's look at verse 19. That first reality is that the law drives us to Christ. Verse 19, I, I put, for through the law, I died to the law and I couldn't get past through the law. Somehow by going through the law, I actually died to the law. And there was only one commentary that agreed with me. So I'm probably wrong, but I'm going to put it before you and let you wrestle with it and be Bereans. For through the law. Well, what law is he talking about? Let's unpack that first. The Mosaic law, he's talking to Jewish Christians and to Jews. Well, maybe not to the Jewish Christians, but uh, he's talking about those who are Jews who are trying to teach that somehow you can be right with God through faith in Christ plus obedience to the law. And so he's going to instruct them. And he said, actually, through the law, I died to the law. Through the Mosaic law, I actually somehow died. And so I looked at Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Look over there with me. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified or again, translate it, declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And so I just thought, how did somebody go through the means of the law and then die to it? And as I look at Galatians, uh, I have the I have landed uh, that the law, instead of trying to be declared righteous through it, it actually leads us to our inability and it shows us our desperate need for a savior. And you think about it, how does the law do that? Well, Jesus does that in the Sermon on the Mount. How does he do that? Well, he says, you've heard it said to not commit murder. And some, some Pharisees sitting there going, you know what, Jesus, actually, I've never committed murder, so I'm righteous before God. But what does he do? What was the intent of that teaching about murder? He says, if you ever become angry with your brother, you are guilty. He does it with adultery as well. If you've ever lusted after someone, you are declared guilty before God. And so instead of, uh, as these false teachers would have us think, that in order to be righteous before God, I must go through the law and obey it, and that way I can become righteous, I would say that Paul is arguing that actually through the law I actually died to it because the law, letting it do what its actually intent is, is to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our tutor to point us to Christ. It was never intended for us to grab our checklist so that we could make ourselves righteous before his sight. It was to drive us to or to drive us and to have faith in him. And so I just want to ask you, are you viewing God's word in that manner? Are you trying to think that, you know what, if I just obey, if I go back in here and I just obey everything that it says, I will finally be righteous in God's sight. I'll be declared righteous. 
by my effort of getting into this book and reading it and understanding it. Well, I hope that you see that he's making an argument against that. And he continues in his, uh, he continues in the rest of verse 19. And he actually says that we have died with Christ. Reality number two is that we've died with Christ. And so let's look at verse 19, the last half. For through the law, through the law being pointed to Christ, I actually died to the law so that I might live to God. In verse 20, he further describes that. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What on earth does this mean that you and I have been crucified with Christ? We didn't even live in that time period. How could that be that I have been crucified? And how on earth does that further an argument that I am no longer to try to strive for righteousness through the law? Well, turn over with me to Galatians 5.19. So we have to ask, what is this crucified language trying to communicate? 519, it says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Skip down to verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, there it is again, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So I just read a lengthy list of fleshly sin. That's our flesh. And yet in Galatians, he he teaches us that Those who belong to Christ, that flesh, that sinful flesh has been crucified with Christ. Let's look at this a little further. Turn to the left in your Bibles to Romans. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 verse 5. Again, we just saw that this flesh, this sinful flesh has been crucified. Romans 6 verse 5 says, For if we have become united with him, speaking of Christ, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Well, here's some more points of our crucifixion. Look back at verse 6. Our old self, that old flesh, was crucified with Christ. 
Here's the purpose. In order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Our sinful flesh was crucified so that we would no longer be enslaved to our sinful flesh. Crucifixion. Turn one page or maybe it's a couple pages in your Bible to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law... There's our there's our discussion. These false teachers come in. You have to place your trust in Christ. Plus, you need to obey the law. Verse four of chapter seven of Romans. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So what have we compiled? How does crucifixion and the law and our flesh, what does that have to do with this text back in Galatians? Well, first of all, we have to realize that our flesh, our sinful nature was crucified with Christ. That frees us from the dominion and the enslavement to sin. Secondly, And what we found in Romans chapter 7 is that we we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ as well. The law is no longer binding to us. Where in fact, verse 6 says, we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound to serve Christ. So let's turn back to Galatians chapter 2. And see, why does he bring that up here? If I'm right in verse 19, that through the law, that means I was pointed to Christ. The reality is that I actually died to that law because I was joined to Christ or I was crucified with Christ. I'm no longer under the bondage of the law so that I might live to God. In other words, our crucifixion with Christ frees us from the binding penalty of the law. And think about how this this brings a death blow to somebody who would ever come up to you and say, in order to be righteous before God, Andrew, you must certainly trust in God. Usually they just say that in generalities, just you need to trust in God and you need to obey the law. Well, this text draws me, well, actually through the law, I was pointed to Christ and I'm actually dead to the law. So how could you come up and tell me that in order for you to be righteous before God, Andrew, you must obey it. And I'm looking at Romans chapter seven. I'm saying, actually, I'm dead to it. I'm actually dead to it. And that's where some people get uncomfortable 
Because, Andrew, that means that you're teaching that no longer do Christians need to look at the law and try to obey it, but instead you're just saying they can just live however they want. Well, I'm grateful because Paul's going to address that. That's not the case. So first reality was that the law drives us to Christ instead of trying to make us think that we have to climb this ladder through the law. Reality number two is that because of our death with Christ, we're no longer bound under that law. And here's the exhortation right from Romans 6 and what I'm going to press against that we'll just live however we want. This is what Paul writes after Romans 6, which he explains that you're not under the law. Your flesh is dead. It's been crucified. And this is how he exhorts us. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You see, just because we're not under the law doesn't mean we can live however we want. We're going to address that. But it has to be clear here that the law, it was never intended for you to just try to climb the ladder of obedience so that you can be declared righteous in his sight. Never had that purpose. Reality number three, we have life in Christ. Let's look at verse 20, the last half. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. We've, our sinful flesh has been crucified. We're no longer under the law. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The first thing to note of the Christian life, which is not under the law, but now united to Christ, is first, that first few words, but Christ lives in me. By his spirit, our life is lived in a way that pleases Christ, or it ought to. He put his spirit in us. Our lives, our, our sinful flesh has been crucified. But now our life comes from Christ. And you're going to see this, his Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ, God's Spirit, all of that is referring to the Holy Spirit. And Christ lives in me. The empowerment for living the Christian life is God's spirit in us, opposed to or opposite of the flesh which was crucified. It's a life lived and empowered by God's spirit who indwells every believer. But he doesn't stop there. And the life which I now live in the flesh, this ongoing life, that you and I live, we live by faith in the Son of God. This is a life, Christian, that's marked by trusting in Christ. 
It's not a life trusting in our works and being obedient to the law. First, it's empowered by Christ and then it's lived out by faith in Christ. The life that we have, the life in the flesh. We're not talking about uh, the sinful flesh that's been crucified, but our bodily existence here on earth is one empowered by Christ's spirit and it's lived by faith in him. We're trusting in him. We're looking to him. We want to obey him. And I would say this, it's encouraged because do you realize the one in whom you're trusting as you live is this one. Keep reading. Who loved me. Paul, very personal. He loved me. This son of God, this Jesus, he loves me. And he gave himself up for me. I would say that this Christian life is empowered by his spirit. It's lived out by faith and it's encouraged by the fact that this one in whom we're trusting, he loves us far more than we could understand. And he demonstrated that love by giving himself for us. What price was he willing to pay? He gave himself to death for us. You see, this, in my opinion, lands a death blow to anybody that would say, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. When I read this, I think I see the law pointing me to Christ I'm actually no longer under the law. I have been crucified with Christ. And now the life that I live is not one trying to climb a ladder of works to be righteous before God. No, it's actually empowered by Christ. It's lived out by faith in Christ and it's encouraged by his deep love and commitment to his people. And so verse 21, it says, I do not nullify the grace of Christ. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly or of no purpose. There was no reason for him to die. If you and I could just climb a ladder, if we could just obey enough, then Christ died for no purpose. How many of you are you comfortable with me even saying that? No, he is our life. We have been crucified with him. We have been raised with him. And so again, if somebody ever came and taught that you must trust in this Jesus, but also obey the law by God's grace, I hope you go here and you say, you know what? I'm actually dead to the law and I'm alive and trusting myself to Christ. He empowers me. I live by faith in him and he loved me and he gave himself for me. So I asked the question at the beginning, does it, it, does it matter? Is there a danger to one's soul if we get this wrong? Well, Paul sure seems like he does. He sure seems like it's true that if you get this wrong, then you just... Verse 21, 
If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If you try to achieve it through the law or through whatever system you conjure up, then you spit on the sacrifice of Christ. He just died needlessly. That's not really that important. But our life is found in Christ. It's lived by faith in him, trusting in him alone. Bow your heads as we pray. Maybe you're here at Bible college and I just want to give you an opportunity to evaluate your own heart. I just want you to pause. I want you to think. Do you base your righteousness before God on whether you get up and you have your devotions or whether or not you get A's in class or whether or not you are kind Again, I want you to pursue those things. I want you to to, to pursue excellence in school, but it, it can be easy in the Christian life to trust in some work and that's what makes me pleasing before God. These men wanted to encourage that we were to live by the law and that's how we're righteous. I just want you to pause and think, am I trusting In Christ? Am I looking to Him? Instead of looking to our own efforts. Father, I pray that you would use your word um, to bring men and women to yourself, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would see the glories of Christ if they've been thinking or if they have friends who are in religious systems and which teach that in order to be right before God, they must uh, do good works plus a faith in God that they would be able to use your word by your grace in Galatians to explain and help them see. Uh, Father, if as believers, we're also challenged from this text that if we do believe in Christ, Uh, It really reorients how we're supposed to live this Christian life as well. It's it's not one bound under the law, but it's actually empowered by you. It is lived out by faith in you. And it's uh, encouraged by your love for us. God, would you open our eyes to these realities and these truths? And would it uh, would it have a deep impact in our lives that we would look to your son And that we wouldn't get this wrong. God, we want to be accurate with your word and clear. God, and if I have not been, I ask that they would forget it and that you would get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.